Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Gerald Goodwin. He is an adjunct professor of history at Lemoyne College and adjunct professor of political science at Onondaga Community College, SUNY. He has written a new book titled Race in the Crucible of War, African-American Servicemen and the War in Vietnam. I'm joined by 17 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, Susan Swanton, outside of Rochester, New York, retired library director, but still in public service and very active with the local Democrats. Uh, Doug Shapiro, living in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, retired physician, behavioral ecologist. Uh, I've lived in a wide variety of places around the world in my time, uh, but now pretty comfortable here in Louisville. Hi, John Woodford, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, where I've been editing and writing till retirement. And I also was in New York and Chicago doing the same thing. Hi, uh, Jeff Fox. I'm a sociologist and fiction writer, uh, now living in southeastern Spain. Hamp Howell, 63, Nashville, Tennessee, clinical psychologist without enough sense to retire. And I, I just took on about three or four more people. And I'm, I'm delighted that I've learned how to, how to do cold water swimming this year. Wow. That, that, that it's a it's a new skill that I've picked up at 81. Oh, really? And, and I'm re remembering uh, my days with Boston Draft Resistance Group in uh, 63, 64, 65. And uh, there were two different, there, were two, there was a Green Beret <laughs> black soldier whose name forgets uh, I've forgotten who stayed in in my uh, I I gave he was on the run and I gave him a place to stay for a uh, year or two and uh, I'm sorry a day or two and then he uh, left with and left with with my wallet <laughs> the good deed goes unpunished right all right. then uh, Alden Briscoe uh, lived in various places, moved across the country, now living just south of San Francisco. And uh, my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm. Okay, Dorothy. After graduating, I moved to New York, joined the civil rights movement and the Harlem Action Group, stayed there for 25 years and began to do work with young people, rehabilitating housing in their communities for homeless people and started Youth Build and spread that around the country and around the world. And I left as the CEO of Youth Build in uh, 2017, but I'm still working with various groups of young adult change makers, trying to support them and advocate for their causes. Uh, and uh, life is good, but I, I am now back. I had to move home to take care of my mother who had Alzheimer's in the 80s. And what was your maiden name? What? What was your maiden name? Oh, my maiden name is Dorothy Stoneman. You know, back in the day, we didn't take our husband's names. Mm. <laughs> my husband's name is John Bell. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign and its Open Rivers Project in New York City. 
and I'm preparing a vast treasure trove of documents for a major repository to counter disinformation and uh, and shed light on the policy controversies that are still totally alive that have been issues con in contention for 50 years. <laughs> George, George Jones. In keeping with the tradition started by Aaron Rodgers, among others, George <laughs> Jones, Manual Training High School, Muskogee, Oklahoma. <laughs> Mason. Uh, I think I've already been on, but uh, I'm down here in sunny Florida. Uh, I spent most of my professional life doing land conservation, more recently involved with uh, climate change uh, advocacy. Okay. David, David Allen. Um, in Concord, class of 63, of course, uh, as I say, I've had a pastiche of a life uh, in business, in academic life, and in recent decades, uh, advocacy, uh, supporting and hopefully strengthening democracy around the world, and especially here at home, and looking forward. All righty. And Professor Daryl Goodwin, welcome to our group, and uh, we're glad to have you. Tell us about your life and tell us about the book. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking of where I should begin. Um, so I was born and I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, um, but it's a little bit more complex than that. My, so my both my parents are, were American immigrants to Canada. Cool. So my mother was married to a Canadian before. That didn't work out, and then married my father. Uh, my father is a professor of U.S. history, so he got a job in Canada, and so that's kind of why we ended up there. And so my dad is from uh, the like deep south, South Carolina, Alabama. My mother's from the Midwest. Um, I mean, I, I think played somewhat of an influence on me. And so then I went to college in Ottawa. And then went to college at University of Kentucky. So I know there was one person who studied Louisville. So, you know, very familiar with that area. And then I went to get my PhD at Ohio University, which is in Athens, Ohio. And now, then I also lived in Bloomington, Indiana. After that, where my wife went to get her PhD. And now I live in, in Syracuse, New York. And so, you know, in terms of, I mean, everybody had a really impressive background. So I was really interested to hear about all of you first. Um, and there's, you know, some similarities, I think, too, in terms of background stuff. It's interesting to hear. And so I teach political science. I teach American politics. I teach uh, various forms of history. And, um, and then, yeah, I have a wife and a seven-month-old daughter who's turning eight months old tomorrow. So if you hear someone crying, that's probably her. her. Um, and then I do a lot of work in just in terms of, like, advocacy, mentoring, tutoring in the refugee community in Syracuse. It has one of the largest refugee populations, uh, mostly from mostly victims of uh, Congolese civil war uh, mm. and also like Rwanda, Uganda, that whole sort of area. So I do a lot of work at that and that's really been kind of my main focus outside of the book and family, which I guess is all kind of interconnected actually, because we really are close to a lot of the people um, for the past, you know, during the entire COVID period really and pre that a little bit. So. In terms of my book, so it started again, kind of like a like a it's a long time coming, I guess you could say, because my uh, my master's thesis was written somewhat on this topic, so that goes 
all the way back to 2008. And then my PhD uh, dissertation was 2014, was also on top of African-Americans, African-American service members in the Vietnam War. And so that's the topic of the book. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of where the research lies from. And I think it connects. I think a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's historians who study stuff and it's not, there's no personal connection to it, but I do think for myself that there's a kind of personal connection um, if not to serving in Vietnam necessarily, but I did grow up around a lot of Vietnamese people who, uh, you know, are on the nationalist side. And so I kind of got to see that from that perspective at an early age. And in terms of racism, like my father obviously witnessed a lot of racism in the old South. And so, um, that kind of impact or the deep South, I should say. And so that sort of impacted us in terms of like the lessons we learned early on. I also uh, grew up like in a community where there's a lot of where there's a good amount of diversity and even my, my even my family ourselves we weren't from you know we kind of understood that we weren't necessarily from the area that we grew up in and having other friends that are from other places I think had a huge influence on me as well so I think that kind of all connected and yeah I think that's that's kind of a brief maybe it wasn't that brief but somewhat brief uh, in terms of my background and you know in terms of the book I think it relates and I, you know, I'm really interested in race and how issues of race are, are, um, are dealt with, like both sort of like at a, at a very upfront level, but also how like race is a sort of thing that you can't quite touch, but it touches all of us at the same time. You can't quite explain it, but it has a, a significant impact on people. And so I really kind of was interested in like how racial issues in the United States impacted racial issues in Vietnam and how those interacted with one another and what its impact would be. So that's that's kind of like sort of a, a rough uh, statement. How, how is your book structured and how did you write it? How did you do it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, it's really, I think in a topic like this, there's you know like a few different ways you could go. I think, I don't think wars necessarily go along like a chronology timeline. If you're talking about different people's experiences, I think that that can get a little messy. So it's really written and I look at, um, I start with looking at sort of like positive interactions that 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 service members had uh, between blacks and whites, um, and so it looks at sort of those are mostly on frontline experiences, pe people who are like in combat, and look at how those things kind of challenge some of the dominant uh, interactions back in the United States, um, and then I sort of look at how you know like how we often have a perception. Um, and I maybe I'm using we a little too openly, but like, you know, there's often in, in terms of when you hear racism discussed, it's often, well, this person was racist to this other person, but it, it really looks at like how, even though people can get along maybe in an environment that that doesn't mean it's like a race, racial free environment or that that's not, doesn't mean that a, that a situation is devoid of racism. So the second section I look at, uh, at experiences with discrimination and, and they're pretty, pretty overwhelming evidence that um, the entire experience of, of African-American service member uh, was a reflection of being discriminated against, whether that was in the draft uh, and the fact that they didn't have opportunities or as many opportunities like to get out of it through deferments, uh, whether they be medical, educational, and then where even their status in the military was sort of defined by these lack of opportunities, right? Because a person was placed based on their educational background, their ability to get through these tests and so I look at how kind of like all of those things uh, interacted with a, the person before they get in, before they're actually stationed somewhere. And then how you have kind of like decisions, let's say on the ground made by officers, which just kind of 
extend that further in terms of assignments, discrimination and assignments, uh, discrimination and punishment is a major issue too. So I also look at the criminal justice system in, in Vietnam and, and how that often targeted African-Americans for more severe punishments or, or punishments at all. And then it looks at sort of the, the blow up of racial violence, which happens uh, in Vietnam uh, post Martin Luther King's assassination. And so it looks and sort of traces um, where that begins and, and what, uh, what the evidence shows, like the reasoning behind it. And so you see this huge swell of racial violence in the military, uh, not only in Vietnam, but other places. And so it sort of looks at like, you know, just brings attention to this because there's not been much attention to this before. And then at the same time, like, you know, the military's sort of failure to deal with these issues or address them properly, um, mainly because they just had a mindset that was not really prepared to deal with racial issues. And of course, people are dealing with racial issues who might have racial, uh, racial, racial or racist uh, inclinations in the first place. And then I also look at their um, interactions with Vietnamese civilians, uh, as well as combatants and how that also plays out and how, you know, much of what we see in United States is kind of replayed in Vietnam in a lot of ways, just a few years later. So you see, you know, positive interactions, very negative reaction interactions, um, and then, you know, some complicated reactions, interactions between the Vietnamese and, and black, uh, black service members. Um, so that's kind of You get a uh, chance to talk to a lot of veterans, people who have yeah. said. Yeah, so I did a lot of, uh, I did kind of try to hit every sort of note in terms of research. So I did a lot of interviews with veterans. I did interviews with journalists. I did interviews with lawyers. There was a lawyer's guild who, who defended um, uh, um, service members who had been accused of a crime. I did interviews with psychologists, doctors, um, and a lot of veterans. Yeah, I interviewed black and white veterans, but obviously primarily I wanted to kind of learn what the experience of black veterans was from them themselves. Uh, I did a pretty significant dive into newspapers at the time period, magazines of the time period. Additionally, I looked at um, military documents as well. So there is military documents at the Army Heritage Center and also at the archive, National Archives. So, I mean, was there anything that, that surprised you that you were sort of startled by in, in your research or in the book? You know, I think some stuff, you know, startled, right? Like, I think I was startled at points. I think by now I'm not all that startled, but, you know, I think some of it is the, um, I think one thing that's probably worth noting, right, is that you look through these documents, especially so I have like criminal documents, right? So it has like evidence of crimes and it talks about it. And I think one thing that's sort of stark is for one, how they often labeled these crimes without perhaps that much research. And they often didn't really know who did it or what the circumstance was, but still sort of led uh, them to conclusions that were often fairly harmful. Uh, I think one thing too is that there was quite a bit of, even when they, the military made some efforts towards reform that you still had many people who are higher ranking who would openly admit that they weren't following the reforms and didn't care. So I think that was fairly surprising. I think, you know, like early on, I think I would have been surprised, for example, that you would see um, some very extreme behavior by white, uh, by white service members. Uh, you know, like there's some service members who were promoted despite it being known that they're in the American Nazi party. Um, that wouldn't be something I'd be surprised at now, but when I learned that I was fairly surprised. And so there, there was definitely like a sort of conflation of like anything seemingly being black as being harmful and particularly dangerous 
and really it didn't matter what the the extremity was on on the white side that they weren't going to view that as as at least worth punishing which that has changed to to an extent in the military though there are still extremists obviously um but i don't think too many military commanders today would tolerate someone being in the american nazi party for example mm -hmm. so i think some of that i think some of the particular stories right you're you're shocked by some of the the evidence sometimes someone would tell me something i would think well i don't know if that you know like who knows like you're just going by this person's account and then sure enough you would find it in the evidence that they were telling exactly what happened um so i, I think uh you know i went to i it is it is uh, a study based heavily on black uh veterans accounts right and so i think it's important to get those accounts down in an accurate way because as a historian the history doesn't always address what people who aren't on top think or say. So I, you know, I was always really surprised in a positive way, I would say, how willing the people I interviewed were to open up and talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something surprised in a positive way mm -hmm. that, that people kind of wanted it out there, even if they may be saying something that they hadn't told anyone else, or even, you know, that they might think was, was potentially, you know, damaging to them, they would say, yeah, but somebody needs to know about this, mm -hmm. so. Did you did you find any significant difference between the ways uh, white soldiers and black soldiers dealt with the Vietnamese, or or differences in the Vietnamese reactions to one or the other? Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Like that, and there's a lot of that in the book. That's so I look at sort of like in one of the chapters, I look at how are you talking about civilians, or are you talking about combatants, or either one? I was I was thinking of civilians, but you yeah. tell me what you found. Okay, yeah, so. I would say that there was an overriding belief among black veterans, both. And, and again, I would say too, that I like I interviewed black veterans today, but I also of course looked at interviews from the time period. I looked at accounts from the time period. So they often could like completely matched up. There didn't seem to be a lot of sort of like romanticism of what was going on. It seemed to be fairly consistent that people thought this then and people thought this now. So what the majority of uh, black veterans said while also admitting that some black veterans may have mistreated Vietnamese people. And of course there is a record of some individuals, but um, that they empathize with the Vietnamese. They saw them as, as, as experiencing poverty and racism in a similar way to the way that they experienced it. Now, part of this is of course, they're, they're interacting with people that they had no interaction with. There was very few Vietnamese people in the United States at this time period and, and few black people would have had any interactions with them. But, I think there is something to say for it. There's quite a bit of evidence, even just in sort of uh, like surveys and stuff taken at the time that there was a lot less sort of blaming of the civilian population and thinking like they were doing something either to directly corrupt the, the mission. And a lot of them would have recognized that the Vietnamese population wasn't backing the US necessarily, you know, but they would have said too that, you know, maybe they had a reason for that. Like it was sort of an understanding that not backing an American regime made a lot of sense. So they tended to, while also recognizing that a Vietnamese person could kill you, there tended to be a, a greater understanding of, you know, that they might have good reason to not want US troops there. And that this wasn't just out of nowhere. And so there was often a, a connection made between like racial slurs that soldiers and, you know, service members would use against the Vietnamese to, well, people use these terms against me. And, and, and for all I know, maybe other people are using this against me behind my back. And so they often connected those things. Now, it's also worth noting that the Vietnamese civilian population picked up on some of these antagonisms. 
and they would often appeal to black troops themselves directly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Using, they would say stuff like me and you, same, same brother, same, same soul brother. So they would use this rhetoric. And so it also, that's, that's one of the points of the book as well is just as it's impossible for African-Americans to travel to Vietnam without thinking of racial issues in the United States, it's also kind of impossible because they're being reminded of it, right? Not only by their own experiences, but even the Vietnamese are, are telling them, hey, it seems pretty bad what's going on in the U.S. to you. You know, what, it, what what's that all about? And so those appeals came from civilians, but they also came from the Viet Cong, the NLF, and the DRV themselves. They also used propaganda to appeal to African-Americans. Uh-huh. And so to, to a large extent, you're being told where you go that the Vietnamese are sympathetic towards you. And then you're also seeing some connections. So many veterans would say, like, I saw this old lady, you know, yeah. at a village and she was very dutiful and and submissive. And she was making us all soup to try to make us happy. And they would say, well, that reminded me of my mom who was in need. You know, that, that reminded me of this person that I knew in my community who was forced in that situation. So it all seemed sort of similar in a way that, you know, one veteran I interviewed said, it was kind of like the way that a help, the black help in a house is invisible. That's the way that I saw the Vietnamese, that white people view them as invisible and someone to just either mistreat or take advantage of. And so they often had these thoughts themselves, if that makes sense. If there's one thing that I would take away from that era, it's Muhammad Ali saying, I ain't got yeah. nothing against them Viet Congs. Yeah. Yeah. And like that was expressed by him and a bunch of people took that on but it was also like they're kind of being told that right like people were saying that and and i mean i think it is worth questioning you know like how sincere that was i think some people probably were just doing it to try to get you know positive affirmation back or for money you know obviously if they go up to somebody and say me and you same same we're the best you know like we're both equal can i have a dollar someone's more likely to do that than if you insult them there's also quite a bit of evidence though that white uh, service members were also trying to counter, not counteract that narrative specifically, but they would tell the Vietnamese negative things and untrue things about African-Americans. There's a long history of that, of, of white service members telling indigenous populations negative things about black people. Like they have tails, like they're animals. That's a pretty consistent. And you don't even, you don't just see that in accounts. You see that in actual military sources, which actually say, we had this incident and it's still going on. Like they very much will, will in these, in these incident reports though, they're sort of, they give you the impression that this is not new and they've tried to address it and they're not able to stop it. And, and that goes all the way to there's accounts of them creating separate uh, drinking areas mm-hmm. and saying that the Vietnamese said you can only drink in this area. Bars were often segregated. Uh, they sold Confederate flags on the streets of, of Saigon and other places. And again, that's another part that I bring up in the book that this of course happened to the impetus of whites, that this was not Vietnamese people don't know anything about segregating people from one to the next. They obviously don't know racial slurs for black people that, are, that come from the United States. So racism and, and those types of things travel with the American fighting force and create you know, almost like an extension of, of, of these racist areas in the US into Vietnam, mm-hmm. so. Uh, uh, John Woodford. Well, two things. One, um, as far as the uh, racism and uh, groups in the military now, hate groups, fascists, and so forth, I would direct people to the story by Brian Bender in Politico 
of January 2021 headline, the military has a hate group problem, but it doesn't know how bad it's gotten. And he says that uh, the Pentagon is confronting a resurgence of white supremacy and other right wing ideologies in the ranks and is scrambling to track how acute the problem has become in the Trump era. And it goes on to detail uh, the rise and what they're trying to do about it. So I would say um, that there's quite a problem, not only in the not only in the military, a lot of those military, the worst ones going to the police forces. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I would totally agree. I would say. So, yeah. So, that, so that's a problem. Yeah. But I want to get also to the the writing by the black reporters who went to the covered the war early on. The, one of the yeah. most well known was Wallace Terry, who wrote the book Bloods. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he wrote it in 84 or so. But they uh, early in the war, several black reporters went there and originally they were sent there to kind of boost uh, black support for the war. So Arabelle Thompson of um, Ebony and Jet, Simeon Booker, and um, I think Tom Johnson might have gone for New York Times. But uh, originally that's how it was. They were sort of acknowledging racism was a problem, but they were trying to still drum up support for the war. But that, thanks to the anti-war movement, and the anti um, and the and the um, within the military too, the work done by groups in the cafes against the war and the the rise in political understanding of the war. There was a lot of negative feeling in the black community, even though they had a lot of guys in the war disproportionately. A lot of feeling against the wars, and a lot of the black press early on began to cover the war as. Uh, as a black people being, uh, you know, s- serving as cannon fodder in this imperial effort that went on too. But Blood Wallace Terry's book was uh, was very well uh, received and covered. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you said in your work. Yeah, yeah, no, of course, yeah, no, I use his. I mean, that was one of the reasons I I got into the subject. Actually, somebody said because I had sort of said oh, I want to do something with. This is like 2008 or something, so it's not mm-hmm. recently. But and I said, well, I want to do something on African American history, but I also am interested in the Vietnam War. And somebody was like, a friend of mine was like, well, why don't you look at this book? And he gave me a copy of Blood. So yeah, it has, yes, it has not only that, but like his other work in general. I mean, he was there multiple times throughout the years, mm-hmm. and it definitely gives you an insight. And yes, it's totally true that a hate groups are still a problem in the military for sure. Um, there's more of a direct kind of understanding that these aren't a good thing uh, but there is certainly a problem i mean there's a problem in terms of veterans you know some of the people july 6 or july 6 january 6 were veterans mm-hmm. there's a long sort of standing problem of hate groups encouraging people to go into the military actually um and and i would say probably and again i'm not i'm not an expert on that issue in the present but i have wondered there's a tension in certain periods not so much you haven't heard that much in the last maybe five years, but there was a tension at one point that gang members were being in, in the military, like Crips or Bloods. Mm. And I, I very much said to myself, geez, this seems to be like a redoing <laughs> when, when realistically nobody is going from the Crips to the army with an intention of some, like subverting the government or something. Like that. <laughs> that that's, there may be somebody who's a Crip and then joins the military and, you know, maybe their life's better, maybe it's not, but they're not trying to 
you know, like lead some sort of racial revolution. So I did think when I saw that years ago, I, I wonder if they're going to make the same sort of mistakes and focus on this fairly innocuous. They would have videos of people doing like crypt dances and stuff at military events. And they'd say, well, that you know, this is the worst thing ever. And so, you know, which maybe it's not positive, but it's not exactly like organizing uh, a group of people to overthrow the government or create a race war. Um, and so the second, but the second part, yes, yeah, so yeah, I used a lot of that. And there's definitely, I mean, some journalists have outright admitted that they tried to be somewhat positive because of course they did not want to criticize the Johnson administration, at least not come on in a very, but that said too, I think that at times people have not credited the black community enough for opposing Vietnam. Uh, you know, there were marches, there were people speaking out against it. And I think it can be a little bit inaccurate too to say that that necessarily like this is what an anti-war person has to do or look like. Um, so, and you're quite right that at a certain period of time, the community had definitely um, turned uh, more against the war and that some of that's anti-war stuff. Some of that's, you know, people like Martin Luther King speaking out against the war or Muhammad Ali. And some of that's just your own experience, right? That military service has long been seen as, as, as uh, for in the black community is a sign of, you know, this is how I'm going to get advancement. But I do think at the Vietnam period, you started to see less of that, especially a few years into the war, it, it was no longer seen as a place of advancement. And in fact, it was seen as no different. Um, and you see that uh, definitely by 68, 69, you see people say that specifically. Mm -hmm. Doug. Yeah. Um... I'm wondering if you could say something about uh, what the actual experiences of uh, blacks in the military have been and how that might, might or might not have changed from say the World War II, the Korean War, uh, Vietnam War and today. Sure, yeah. So I think, you know, like the best way and this I'm sort of, the best way to think about black service in the military up until let's say Korea is blacks, often wanting to fight and not being allowed to fight because of a fear of either arming them and there being some domestic problem or just racist beliefs that they won't be able to fight and they'll be cowardly and they'll run, run away. So you see a fairly consistent from really the Revolutionary War until Korea of, no, we don't want them to fight. No, we don't. They shouldn't fight. They can just do rear line stuff. And then, oh, well, this war was not going well. We need them. <laughs> and then kind of right back to the to the start again once the next war happens so you feel you see a fairly consistent consistency in terms of black military service and that doesn't mean that there aren't people saying oh they've served really well or something but it's it's often kind of like then disconnected from policy now a change happens obviously executive order by truman he desegregates the military but the reality is they don't work fast at it there's they're not working immediately to desegregate the military so most people that served in Korea really still served in a segregated military. Even if it had been desegregated, the military in full was not desegregated until the war was over. So Vietnam is different because it's the first conflict that for the entire conflict, the military was fully desegregated in terms of now, I mean, there were low numbers in let's say the Air Force, right? And high numbers in, in the Marines and the Army. The issue now, of course, is then you have a different problem, which is not we're fighting to serve, we want to serve, but now it seems like we're serving too much. Too many of us are getting drafted, too many of us are being sent into combat, and the evidence speaks for itself, that's true, 
uh, especially early on in the war, the draft numbers actually go up, but the numbers of combat drop through the Pentagon's intervention because they're actually concerned with this as well. So it's sort of interesting uh, because they init initially are sort of saying like, see, look, so many black people are fighting, aren't they brave? <laughs> but that doesn't work for very long because the war is not, people are not viewing it positively, right? So, um, so then that changes because now it seems like African-Americans are serving too high numbers, right? Well, they are disproportionately. And so then there's the criticism that they're being used as cannon fodder. And, and why are they going? Why are all these people serving? And the reality is, right, some people have said, well, uh, in fact, past historians have said, well, they weren't really serving disproportionately because it was based on a test. And it, that's true, but the test is, no test is without bias. Uh, you can't, if you're testing a person that wasn't allowed to go to college and has uh, substandard resources in, in high school, right, and doesn't have the ability to get a medical deferment or academic deferment, then that test is biased. And, and ultimately, the reason that so many people were getting these marks on the test is because they were black, because they were living as a black person in America. And, and so as a result of that, that changed kind of the environment between the military and, and the black community. And now still high numbers of African-Americans serve in the military today, right? And so you should always be circumspect when we see someone speaking for the military in terms of a veteran or whatever, because actually the military has is still disproportionately uh, minority based. Um, and, you know, that's, that, that is what it is. Some people still often see it as, a, as an avenue towards an education. So I think that has changed a little bit um, in terms of, you know, people didn't really serve in Vietnam because they thought they were going to get, um, you know, some did, some did. So I wouldn't say nobody did, but that the major reason was being drafted, fearing being drafted or for money. Uh, most evidence shows that's always money is the top reason that people serve in the military. Samuel Stalfer, who did the largest study of veterans in American history, it was a World War II, right? The Good War. And he found that that was the top reason for money. So socioeconomic has, uh, has always played a role in people joining the military. But I would say that's the sort of shift that happens. Before they were wanting to fight, weren't allowed to fight. Then it was, are we fighting too much? And now in a more domestic military, it's a change from now we're, you know, we're sort of, we're serving to get some access to education. So I teach at the community college level. There's plenty of students throughout the years that I've had that are in the military and, and really people that you wouldn't think uh, were, were very like, and then they weren't like pro-military or, or, or sort of like down with the military's this or that or any particular conflict. Yeah, maybe it benefited me, but why should I have to do that to have any benefit from American society, right? Why should I have to do this or that? And I'll just comment, if I may, on the ship size. An aircraft carries an enormous ship with a yeah. huge crew, the air group yeah. and the ship's company. I served in cruisers and destroyers, and I knew everybody on board the ship pretty much by name. Yeah. You know, a few hundred people, two or three hundred people. The cruiser Long Beach had about a thousand people. I didn't know them very well. Yeah. Uh, so it was a more, more close knit, I would say, than an, in a than an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Um, so maybe my experience was different in that regard. Because yeah, I mean, again, it's it's that's what I would say too. Like, especially when you talk about an issue like this, of course, somebody could have a good experience, somebody could have a bad experience. Yeah. Depends on where you're serving. Depends on the context. So, in in the Kitty Hawk, for example. There had been an incident 
and it was seen as basically that they picked on the black people involved. Yeah, sure, I, I can believe that they that. weren't actually that they weren't even involved. That they yeah. that somebody else was responsible. And the interesting thing is that Cloud historians and really anyone who served with him was very much a defender of him. Um, but the fact that it happened, it did it did affect his career. He was the only his the person who you know he 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 there's evidence that he would have been an admiral if he, that had never happened to him. But having this sort of check of being involved in a racial incident, it followed him, right? Yeah. And so and the, even yeah, though he solved it, he, he, he actually, what he did was he gave the Black Power salute and that meant that everybody backed off. Yeah. But they told who him- Who was the gentleman, please? Who was he? Pardon him? His name is who Ben is Cloud. Ben Cloud. What? He was in the Navy? Yeah. It was a USS Kitty Hawk. It was a 72. And he was what rank at that time? I think he was petty officer, I want to say. Okay. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll just yeah. mention that, you know, I was in the nuclear power ships, nuclear powered yeah. ships, and a black man rose to command of a nuclear powered cruiser and then yeah. subsequently was a vice admiral and commander in chief of the uh, uh, naval surface forces in the Atlantic. So there were certainly people who rose to high position. And of course, Daniel Graham was another. Yeah, uh, they're just very limited, right? So very, and there's a few, yes, I'd agree yeah, with there's that. There's two, there's two commanders during there's two generals during the Vietnam War. Both of them weren't in command of combat troops. They also both weren't honestly particularly connected to black troops. They both said there was no racism in the military. So it, you know, there's also, now again, maybe they had no choice but to say that. It's not me judging them. I think Kent even interviewed one of them. Um, but, you know, it, that's a thing too, right? Like, yes, but can somebody get to that position without doing certain things? And I'm not saying that to discredit the person. I'm just simply saying that. And ultimately, even if you could get to that rank, right, it still wouldn't mean that other people, the vast majority of people aren't experiencing considerable discrimination. But of course, it, it's also there's quite a bit of evidence that leadership plays a role. That Indeed. if people were led properly, that some of this stuff was was lessened. There's quite a bit of evidence that when black force troops were listened to and they took into consideration something, that people backed off and people were like, okay, like so, you know, I think that's that's one misconception I would think in terms of Kent, you know, asking earlier is that that necessarily like you had all these like black panther radicals in the military or something like that it, it really wasn't that would be a misconception it was not really that most of the most of the stuff even and this is from military surveillance so this is people going into these meetings without you know like under undercover and they would come back and they would say like oh my god they're such extremists <clears throat> they want they want the chain of command to listen to their 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 complaints <laughs> and again so i go it. back to the small yeah. ship idea versus the yeah. huge unit you know yeah but i, but well, I mean yeah. but i mean gerald you know i i was there in in uh in in, in 68 and you know up in da Nang and working on a documentary and basically the issue for the pentagon at that time was was fragging and, yeah. and, and indeed that officers were being killed by yeah. troopers who would put a grenade underneath their tent or something like that yeah. There was a real class issue in the sense that there were a lot of uh, uh, white uh, officers who wanted to make a name for themselves, et cetera, et cetera, and would send these guys out on patrols that just made no sense at yeah. all. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you, and yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, the reality too is like, I, I interviewed somebody who is white and, and pretty conservative and he said that happened to him too. So it's like, you know, it, it wasn't always racial. Like these things aren't always racial in the same way that a black person and a white person get a fight. It doesn't have to be racial. It could be over money. It could be over a female. It could be any reason. Right. But, and fragging is interesting because I think most of the evidence shows that we just don't really know what the motivation was that, now, some of these are official reports, so you, you, you kind of go, well, maybe they didn't do a very good job of investigating. I will say I did interview someone who was black, and he was almost a victim of a, fra- a fragging. And the guy who did it was native. And he said, I don't think there was any, I don't think there was any uh, racial component. He said, I just think he was mad, and he just did this, and that was it. That I was somebody who was higher ranking than him, and he was just like, I'm going to take it out on the system and do this. So... You know, it's not, but uh, yes, the military was deeply concerned with fragging. Now, the reality is just a normal incidents of violence happen more. Um, but I think they often, you often see a disconnect. Like you would have people reporting these are com- in command and they would report, they would, ha- they would fill it out and they would say like, oh, race relations are excellent. And then they would report 15 racial incidents the week before. Mm-hmm. So, because again, you were punished if this stuff happened. So in Ben Cloud's case, he wasn't rewarded for preventing a further racial incident. He was punished because it just was, you're just connected to it. So I think there's that element too, that to some extent you were, it benefited you if you just pretended like nothing was going on. Right, right. Uh, Dave Allen. So, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah. Uh, can't not say, um, went through uh, the army in that era, the later 60s, uh, OCS, uh, uh, infantry second lieutenant, frankly, thank God I didn't go over there. Um, probably the topic that was most commonly passed around amongst us was the question of fragging. I'm so glad to hear it's finally come up to the surface here. I think we can't let pass your observation that Leadership makes a difference. Uh, yeah. It makes an extraordinary difference. And in order to make a prominent current example, if we hadn't had that asshole of Trump uh, egging on racism and every other God forsaken ism, we would yeah. not be in the situation that we're in today with yeah. uh, January 6th as a possibility and all the other hell that's gone down, such as. The most recent killing of a black man, but God knows how many and how many more are going to come. Yeah. Leadership is everything. And yeah, no, there's, there's, yeah, there's like, I mean, well-known studies of lynching, for example. Um, there's really, I mean, the best, most well-known one is they bring up a few incidents in which, like, mm-hmm. you know, a person is in jail, a lynch mob comes. And the police just refused to let them go and they all left. So, <laughs> you know, like it is true that sometimes things happen at the top. And it's interesting too, because I don't necessarily know that in the military, in terms of racial problems that this that we're talking about from my book, that it was just at the top, it was often mid-level people who just really wouldn't implement it, didn't care. And so you do see quite a bit of difference when somebody was open to this but there was another pretty well-known naval th- issue right around that time 
And even after this guy, this this commander had had numerous problems, numerous issues, he was still saying we have no racial problem on this ship, none at all. And so that lack of sort of accountability often played out as well. And I did look up Ben Cloud as executive officer on the Kitty Hawk. Okay, so he was he was a Navy captain then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, six Navy captain. Yeah. Oh, Hamp. Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, Gerald, what you might think about the different negative stereotypes that went through American wars. I'm kind of oblivious to what happened with World War One and somewhat two, and even the Korean War. Uh, but uh, after that, you know, the there were the negative stereotypes that the Vietnamese were gooks. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, then there was what happened at Abu Ghraib and, yeah. and, and those, those whole contemptuous feelings. And, yeah. and I'm just wondering if you noticed anything about how these negative stereotypes evolved and changed uh or, or were or, or how, how much the military encouraged it so that people would 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 fight hard yeah so i mean yeah that's a really good question i mean it's a loaded topic but yeah the so there's always been some level of dehumanization in war right like you sort of a psychologist would see you know, like there's studies on this so you, you 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 do that and and then people are more likely to kill the enemy if you do that, right? So and they did dehumanize people during World War One for sure. Uh, my father, I grew up with a poster that says, beat back the Hun with a picture of like a purple demon. And it scared, you know, the you know what of me when I was a kid. I said, dad, could you get rid of that? <laughs> so, you know, there was always that aspect. But of course, during World War Two, we see pretty clear differences between the way the Germans are depicted and the way the Japanese are depicted that uh, John Dowers uh, has a book on it. He talks about like the violence really that, that, that comes from dehumanization and that there is clearly just a belief that, you know, the Nazis were bad. They're bad people. We need to kill them. But the Japanese were like, you know, they're like devil. They're like, they need to be exterminated. Right. And so a lot of that falls through to Vietnam as well, where you have this rhetoric now, oftentimes when you interview people, you would find that they told them almost nothing about Vietnam or Vietnamese people before going before being shipped out. So there's also that aspect. A few people said, oh, they said, like, you know, the people are nice. But most of the time it was, you can't trust anybody. They're all against you. You know, we're against all of them, which, you know, considering the the, the way the war was, is a pretty poor message. Um, uh, in the best of times, it would be a poor message. So that 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 was pretty prevalent right you you often heard this dehumanization and and to a lot of black service members they saw that dehumanization as very similar to the way they were treated so that kind of language you would often hear this kind of like why did people have to say that like it's not fair to say that about somebody else and if you say that about them you're saying that about me somewhere and so there was that connection which isn't to say that you know everybody followed that nothing is universal but, you know, that happened quite a bit. And then you see, obviously, like in Iraq and other places, similar types of dehumanization. Now, I will say when it comes to leadership, I think the military has changed in, in some ways, because I think, you know, that that some of the rhetoric might still be tolerated. But I mean, it's it's one thing I teach about is the difference between um, uh, 
the rules of engagement for military as opposed to our own police force. And they're much stricter in the military rules of engagement than they are for, for the police. That I, you know, I've had students who had people in their, you know, units who were arrested because, of, you know, by military police and were charged because they didn't follow rules of engagement and, you know, shot somebody who they was not shooting at them. And so, you know, and I, I actually knew somebody, I had taught a student who was um, in there, this was in Iraq, and they brought in some of the people that were involved in the Abu Ghraib. And he said, if looks could kill, they would have been dead, that everybody in that place hated them. Because their perception was by doing that, you're making us targets. You turned a bunch of people against us, and now we're going to get killed. Or sure. someone, something's going to happen. So that's changed, I think. I think that there's there's maybe a little more appreciation for the fight, even if it's not necessarily about the humanity of Iraqis or anybody else. At least there's a kind of understanding that this would come back and potentially get us, that you know, dehumanizing people leads to violence, and that violence, they won't be put against anybody that's trying to harm us in the first place. And even if it were, it may come back to harm us. So I think that's changed a little bit. I don't think you would have the same rhetoric spoken in such an open manner that you saw in Vietnam, where everybody was kind of talking like that. Okay, Ken, you haven't spoken yet. Ken. Uh, yeah, just, uh, it's not exactly a fun fact, but it's a relevant fact from, uh, well, through, sorry about that, through um, basically the middle of our junior year, I was in Army ROTC uh, at Harvard, um, mainly so I can, I'm very sorry about that call. Um, mainly because uh, I figured I'd be drafted otherwise, uh, but they threw me out for medical reasons uh, uh, in, in my junior year, which I, I actually wasn't trying to get thrown out, but uh, I was, and I was quite relieved. And one of the reasons was because um, so frequently during the various sessions, I suspect it was the officers who were training us, uh, frequently uh, referred to gooks. Uh, as that's, that's who we were going to be dealing with. And this was, you know, pretty early on, but it was deeply ingrained and, and it was obviously disgusting right off the bat. These so, were people at Harvard? At Harvard? Yeah, 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 that was going on. That was, that was, that was there. I don't, I don't recall any of the rest of you were in ROTC at that time. I know Hampy gave me crap every time I showed up in my uniform. Um, <laughs> but I was very happy to be done with that. That's a whole long story. I could tell you some other day over a drink, but just so you know, yeah, that, no, was I, going on, that was going on right there in our backyard. Can, yeah. can you just repeat what you said? I couldn't hear what you said. They referred to groups as what? If someone had used the word earlier, gooks, it was oh, you know, oh. a, a epithet for Asians. And I, 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 yeah, I, Vietnam was not well underway then, or badly underway then, although I do believe it was 61 when the first, I believe, and some of you may know that like the first fatality or at least officer fatality in Vietnam in about 61 was a Harvard uh, graduate. Uh, there was some publicity there. I don't know if that's correct, but that, that's a recollection. But that's what it was. So that's just a bit of a Harvard uh, bad trivia. Probably yeah. Leos. Somebody was in CIA in Leos. Well, like, anyway. Yeah. 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 It reminded me of an incident that 
uh, that happened aboard the cruiser Long Beach. We had a Marine detachment in that ship, a couple of officers and about 20 Marines. And the Marine captain was bored to death. He was a helicopter pilot. And he applied for temporary duty to go into fly helicopters in combat in Vietnam from the cruiser. And he came back, oh, it was great, killing gooks, killing gooks. It was great, you know. He went again and went again. Man, he was a, you know, <laughs> talk about racism. There's that, you know. Yeah. I know I interviewed somebody. He was one of the few black pilots. And so he was a back pilot. So he did like the directional. And they were supposed to go take pictures one day over, you know, I think it was right in right on the border. And they went over and did pictures, and the the other guy shot at a vill at a village for no reason. Just dropped, like just shot, fired on it. And when they got back, he was very mad. And the guy was just like, "Who cares? Like, what does it matter? We can do what we want. Like, they're not basically they're not human. We can just treat them whatever capacity we want." So I mean, there was always that mentality, uh, not by everybody, but there was it was pretty common, right, that people would think that way and. Uh, to give you a, a, an aside, like I, I interviewed a few people who were involved in this lawyers, uh, it was a volunteer lawyers, and they went to Vietnam to to defend um, to defend uh, people, veterans who had been charged with stuff. And they had it as a policy to never defend anybody who had been accused of of killing a Vietnamese person. And the reason was because they were never it never came up. Nobody was ever charged. So there was mm -hmm. no reason. <laughs> there was no representation because they're like it wasn't an issue because as they put it the military had a mere and i'm not gonna say the word but g rule essentially you can kill whoever you want as long as they're that and so you know most of the people of course they were representing were charged with drugs or other infractions but the fact that everybody knew that and in fact there was an incident in which this it wasn't racial but a, a white mm -hmm. officer got tired of a few of the people under him um, uh, smoking marijuana. And he threw a grenade where they were and killed them. And the military didn't go forward with that either. So they said, well, I guess there's now a mere drug user rule in which that doesn't matter either. Huh. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of these things that, you know, when you wield them all together, you find a pretty severe problem, um, you know, and yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's definitely uh, you know, the, the, the mistreatment of the Vietnamese by everybody, really. I mean, the average Vietnamese civilian had incredible pressure on them by all sorts of different people. Um, and, you know, that's really a sad legacy. You know, I just wanted to add an, an observation. Um, recently, uh, I've been um, giving some thought and doing some reading to a cohort in the whole Vietnam world that uh, I, 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 we don't hear about, which was the chaplains. Uh, one of my dearest friends uh, uh, is a retired uh, conservative rabbi and really, truly one of the most saintly people I've, I've known. I've known him since high school. Um, we're still in, in touch. And although he, he fervently opposed the war, he felt um, that the, the soldiers needed uh, chaplains. And so he's written a wonderful little book about his work as a chaplain in Vietnam. Uh, and about his interaction with chaplains of other faiths, and it's 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 really quite extraordinary uh, what those those men uh, um, 
what they what they did, what they tried to do uh, for the soldiers. So just just a piece of information. Yeah, I, I don't know if I don't know if your friend would be interested, but uh, somebody I interviewed again, he's passed, but this is one of the first people I interviewed was one of the few black chaplains in in the military. His name is Wes Gary. I can put it in the chat. Wes Gary. I, I'm seeing my friend tomorrow. I'll ask him about that. Wes Gary. Yeah, Wes. I'll put it in the chat. Oh, great. Thank you. No problem. But so I interviewed him and and he had a really interesting background. He had marched with Martin Luther King. He was involved in all of these different things. And he, like your friend, kind of thought, OK, I have to go. And if they have nobody, at least they have me. Exactly. And he had a really interesting experience. And I talked to other people in his unit and who served with him. And, you know, he was he literally had he literally continued to you know, whatever you want to call it, religious duties to people he served with until he was dead, like until, you know, a few, like five years ago, like for wow. 50 years afterwards, he continued to see these people. And that was a really compelling story. And it's in the book because his commanding officer was the son of somebody who was involved in the Elaine race riots, mm-hmm. who had put down the Elaine race riots. So he had actively, was an active racist, had actively killed black people, assuming that's what he said. And and then became best friends with Wes Gary in Vietnam. <laughs> and wow. so, and they had this relationship and I remember talking to, to him and um, the guy saying like, I actually have it in my will that Wes has to do the funeral. Hmm. And he was like in, uh, and again, I'm not an expert in, 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 in but it was the Everglades area of Florida. And he said, I'm sure people have a problem with a black guy coming in here doing the funeral. I told my daughters, I could care less that that's all that has to happen at the funeral. And that's exactly what happened. And they're now both passed, unfortunately. But Wes, he actually had an experience like with the Vietnamese where one of the people in his unit, a person, a white guy, was chasing a Vietnamese person, a a girl, trying to assault her. And he stopped him. And, you know, like, so he said, you know, people treated them terribly. I tried to, like, I tried to sort of mentor these people and tell them, like, these are human beings. You can't just treat them the way you want. And the, other, the thing that was fascinating about Wes is he was about six seven, and about two hundred and fifty pounds. So he, then and throughout his life, people when they said he heard he was in Vietnam, they thought, "Good God, this guy! He must have been a Navy SEAL. He must have been in some secret ops." And then you find out he was a chaplain. He went in the front with everybody. He never stayed back, and he never carried a weapon, and he was injured multiple times. So there were people like that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a fascinating, and I think, like you said, kind of an underlaid story of the challenges that someone faced. Yeah. yeah. And he would break vows because he would sometimes do ceremonies that from not his religion <laughs> because yeah. there was nobody else there. So yeah. he said, I, I did Catholic ceremonies for people that died and different things because there was nobody else. Yeah, so, the rabbi did. He said the same, yeah. same thing. Yeah. 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 Thank That's you. Really I'll ask him about it. Yeah. What's his? So you said he had a book out, or? Yeah, it's a. Yeah, uh, I, I can I can send you uh, information. Okay. About it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank All you. All right. Last question, David. David Allen. If I could, just for myself, uh, the quality, the depth, the comprehensiveness of the research that we're learning about now, if I may be playing the elegance of the presentation, okay. we are. We are, in simple words, blessed to have had the opportunity. Thank you. That really means a lot. Thank you. And keep on keeping on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming on. That was Gerald Goodwin. His new book is titled 
Race in the Crucible of War, African-American Servicemen, and the War in Vietnam. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. Thank you.